Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're looking at a new section now, verses 12 through 16. I will ask you, it has been the tradition to do this, so I'll keep the tradition going. Uh, If you took a little time this last week to read through Paul's wonderful letter to the church at Philippi, or you listened to somebody read through Paul's wonderful letter to the church at Philippi, uh, please raise your hand. Please raise your hand. Keep it raised. Keep it raised. Keep it raised high. Just looking around. Good. Excellent. 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 Uh, Anything stand out to you in the letter that you could that could be described in one or two words? Anything stand out to you that could be described in one or two words? Can't think of anything right now? That's okay, or you're afraid to speak out? Joy in Christ, Christ. all right, joy in Christ. That was three words, I will accept it though. Uh, so, so that's what I would encourage you to do. Think about that. I'll, I'll probably start asking that every week. If you give a couple shout-outs, something that stood out to you that can be described in one, two, or maybe three words. Um, encouragement. encouragement. Okay, good, excellent. And I also thought uh, that I think this is a good tradition that I, I would want to keep going, that you would read through whatever letter. I was thinking about this. I wish I would have done this a long time ago, like Romans or Thessalonians or Peter or Mar- all of them that you would read through, you know, some of them are a little bit longer, so it requires a little bit more, but that you would read through it each week. I was just thinking how long it takes me to get through any letter and how many times if you would have stayed the course, even if you missed every once in a while, you would have read through that book or that letter and how, how what a blessing that would be to you. You would almost, you would come to know it in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. It's just not enough just to listen to me um, preach through it once a week. It's just not enough. It's good. It's, it's helpful. But uh, to also be reading that and reading that and reading that over and over again. So I want to, not by way of command of the Lord, but just a request of your pastor, I want to encourage you, urge you to, to make it part of your life. That as we're in Philippians and then whatever other books we, uh, we might be in, that you would, you would just make a commitment to read through that uh, every week. Or as my wife did this morning, listen to it. Uh, she listened to it. Um, have someone read to her while she was trying to get ready and was able to do it that way because she wanted to raise her hand. <laughs> uh, you guys could do that, right? You guys all read, right? Yeah? What about it? You think you could read through Philippians, the letter of Philippians? Maybe before next week, before you show up next week in the front row. By the way, I love you guys in the front row. I always feel so lonely up here, but I don't now. And the reason I do is I really can't see beyond the front row because of my sight. So I always feel like I'm preaching to an empty room. But now I see you here, and it's delightful. It's delightful, okay? All right, so make that commitment. You'll be blessed by it. Trust me. All right. Trying to figure out what to do. So I decided, I had already decided to split what could be one message into two messages um, since, since this week with the ministry spotlight. I had an uh, anticipation it would run a little bit longer. And also next week especially. Next week is going to be cool. We're going to have Promise Vaughn here. She'll be giving a special, special presentation on her ministry in Papua New Guinea uh, before she heads back there. She's in the States and through March, and then she'll head back. 
So she'll be with us. And so because of that, we have a, a little less time to fit everything in that we normally do in the service. And on top of that, uh, I split it into two because I think uh, a couple of passes at this section would be a benefit to us. Okay, so I'll, I'll just, uh, when the time's up, I'll just uh, conclude. And we'll pick up wherever we left off, okay? So, but I want to begin, I want to begin with asking you a question. And uh, I will restate it in a few different ways. So I want you to think. Think about the question. I'm asking you. I'm asking you. Okay? Is there something you cherish, something you treasure that you don't yet have and are with the utmost seriousness and intensity chasing after to get? I'll ask it another way, a couple other ways. Is there something you are exceedingly longing for, aching for, and that you are extremely focused on and preoccupied with obtaining? Is there something that the eyes of your heart are absolutely fixed on and that you are earnestly striving to gain and don't plan to quit pursuing until you get it? Think on that for a moment. Do you have an answer maybe in your head? Don't, don't blurt it out. I want you to think on it. I also want to add that in regard to this section of Scripture we're going to be looking at over the next couple of Sundays, one Bible commentator believes this section answers the following important question. Quote, What should occupy the thoughts and focus the energy of genuine Christians. What should that be? With all that in mind, let's begin to look at our, our section, all right? So if you would, let your eyes slip down to the Holy Word of God, or you can follow it up here on the screens if you'd like, whatever works best for you. Reading verses 12 through 16, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. As I said, we'll cover this over two Sundays, but let's just get started. We'll uh, go back to verse 12. That's where it begins. 
Let me read it to you again. We'll focus in there. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Okay? First phrase, not that I have already obtained this. What is the this that Paul is referring to? What is the this? Well, a couple things here. The New American Standard Bible, excellent Bible, by the way. Excellent other Bible to have and read alongside whatever translation you're using. We use the ESV here, NASB, excellent Bible. It uses the word it, it, instead of this. And according to the translation's practice, that is the NASB's translation, according to their practice, and this is one of the reasons I really love that Bible, they put it in italics because it isn't in the manuscripts. The word's not there, okay? Which is helpful to know, which is helpful to know when you're studying the Bible and you're trying to understand it better. The manuscripts from where we get our, the text and then translated you know, Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and then we translate that into English for us. The manuscripts simply read, not that I have already obtained. As uh, one commentator points out though, the verb obtained, it requires an object. Obtained what? <laughs> but one is not found in the original. It's not there. <laughs> That's, Paul doesn't, Provide an object. So translations usually supply one. So for the ESV, this. Not that I have already obtained this. The NIV, all this. Okay, all this. The NIRV, all of those things. Not that I have already obtained all of those things. It's all being supplied by the translation because it's just not there. Or the NLT, these things. Not that I have already obtained these things. Okay, So we get the sense that it may be more than one thing, a number of things maybe. At least that's what they're thinking. Certainly this can be that as well. This can be more than just one specific thing. It can be this collectively. Well, we'll come back to what this or all this or all of those things or these things might be. We'll get there before we quit today, okay? But I just wanted to start there. How about the next phrase? What's the next phrase? Or am already perfect. Perfect. Perfect here is a verb. It's a verb. So to capture that in the NIV, it says, not that I have already been made perfect. Action. NASB, not that I have already become perfect. NLT, not that I have already reached perfection. That's the way those Bibles translate the phrase. It's a verb. This verb translated perfect, it has a wide range of meanings. Okay? Of its possible meanings, I understand it here to mean succeeding fully, or this might be easier, Reaching a goal or bringing something to its goal. That is one of the possible meanings for the word perfect. 
And that's the one, the way I understand Paul to be using it. So if I had to put the whole phrase together now, I would say this, not that I have already obtained, and we'll just leave the object out for a second, not that I have already obtained or have already arrived at my goal. You with me so far? You with me? Okay. So what is Paul talking about? Concerning the, or considering which we should always do, the immediate context or the section, in this case, preceding verse 12, right? Because this is a letter. It's not a, we can't rip this section out and treat it as if it's by itself. It's not. It's part of a letter. And specifically, I'm referring to verses 8 through 11 that precede verse 12, which we've covered, well, we took three Sundays to cover. And there, when we went through that, we learned of the Apostle Paul's, just by way of reminder, overwhelming aim or goal in life, expressed with parallel and overlapping expressions as him wanting to fully gain Christ, be found perfectly in him, and know him completely. In light of all that, it could be said that the this he has not yet obtained or the goal he had not yet reached was, as one commentator puts it, and they're all trying to get at the same idea, but they express, commentators, Bible scholars, they express it maybe a little bit differently, but I think they're all diving into the same bucket He expresses it this way, that this goal was for Paul that he had not yet obtained or reached was apprehending or fully apprehending and comprehending Christ. Okay, two words. Apprehending, not fully, apprehending and comprehending, knowing Christ. Or you could also put it this way. This is how I I might put it. That the this or the goal not yet reached for Paul is a complete, perfect, and full gaining of union with knowledge of Christ. Also, let me add this, because this comes up, it'll come up as I'm working through the passage with you. Included in these concepts of gaining and being found and perfectly united with and knowing Christ, included in these concepts would be the Christian's growing conformity to the image and likeness of Christ, which is a process that begins at conversion when you're saved first and is not completed until glorification. Romans 8.29. The more... The Christian becomes like Christ the more that it is actually less of them and more of Christ, the greater, you could say then, their gain of Christ, their union with Christ, their their knowledge of Christ. It's more full. It's more complete. It won't be completed fully until glory, but it is being made more full through these things. 
okay? As we are conformed to the image of Christ. One scholar puts it this way, verse 12 must be read in the light of what has immediately preceded. And in these verses, or verses eight through 11 of chapter three, it has been stated at length that the ultimate and complete gaining of Christ is the apostle's greatest desire. What is your greatest desire, beloved? He therefore corrects any possible misunderstanding, he being Paul, by making it plain that this goal has not yet been reached, though he presses on towards it. In no sense can it be suggested that he has reached the final destination. Okay? So these are my, these are my greatest, this is my greatest desire. I have not yet achieved this great desire but I am pressing on toward it. Paul was, as one writer says, was in the process of achieving. But in case he was misunderstood, he clarified that he had not yet arrived. All right, you with me so far? All right. Now listen to the language he uses. Just listen, get the tone, get the, get the feel of the text. It's very powerful, very powerful. And Paul chooses his words intentionally. Okay? You're not just throwing stuff out there. And beyond that, the Spirit of God is guiding him in this writing of Holy Scripture. Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, we just looked at, but I press on to make it my own. Another translation is to lay hold of it. Lay hold of it. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He has laid hold of me. It's beautiful. The material here is beautiful. Moving. As you dive into it and begin to understand it. I press on. I press on. Let me give you the Greek definition of the word that's translated I press on. It is to pursue, run after, follow in haste. It is to do something with an intense effort to a goal. One commentator points out that the word translated press on, he says, he sums it up this way, means to move rapidly and decisively toward an objective. Good, it's good. He adds this, and you may not know this just looking at your English translation. You wouldn't just know this looking at the English translation, but Paul used the same word to prove that he was zealous to the point of persecuting the church. That's the same word used for persecuting or persecuting the church in 3.6. It's the same word. It can be used in that way. To go after, to pursue, to follow in haste. He used the same word. And so he says previously his zeal for the law drove him to run after and pursue the church. But now he is running after and pursuing Christ. To know Christ. It's good. All that energy, all that zealousness that you saw in Paul, that energy, all that focus that was seen in his pursuit of the church to persecute them because he believed wrongly that they had a false Messiah. 
That same energy, when he had his eyes open, was now given to the pursuit of the true Messiah, Christ Jesus the Lord. I press on to make it my own. Lay hold of it. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He has laid hold of me. Again, the words here being used, make it my own, or made me his own, or lay hold of it, or lay hold of me, that the word that's translated there, it's an intensified word that means to seize something after a pursuit, to seize it. So we have this idea of this intense pursuit, this following after, this running after, this doing something with an intense effort to a goal, and then we have this, once you get there, the seizing of it, of that objective that you were after. One commentator says, in words that recall his conversion on the Damascus road, Paul asserts the risen and exalted Lord had mightily arrested him. I love that. Arrested him, seized, and set his life in a new direction. He goes on to say, the clause provides the motive for Paul's intense desire of laying hold of Christ. What is that? Namely, because Christ has laid hold of him. He seized him. He arrested him. And now, because of that, Paul has given his life to the pursuit of seizing Christ. Arresting him if you will. One writer says this. is so beautiful, so I want you to see it. At least I, it's my opinion. It's beautiful. Ever since Paul was grasped and apprehended by Christ, he has desired to grasp and comprehend Christ. But to know the incomprehensible greatness of Christ demands a lifetime of arduous inquiry, arduous, strenuous effort. This same Bible scholar then adds this. Christ's apprehension of Paul means that Paul has been captured by Christ, taken hold of by Christ, and Christ will not let go of him. Because he has been apprehended by Christ, Paul has all the reason, all the reason, the assurance and the joy he needs to pursue Christ, even if he has not already fully comprehended Christ. He is running hard after Christ with his heart wide open to receive Christ because Christ has already received him and arrested him by his love. And that actually is where I got the title uh, from for the sermon, Running Hard After Christ. Back to the text. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I do not consider that I have made it my own. It, there it is, there's it. What? It, my own. It is not there. 
Okay, again, in the original, in fact, it just says, I do not consider to have laid hold or made my own. It would, that would sound weird to you, so they put in it, because there needs to be an object. Otherwise, how do you read that? But literally, it says, I do not consider to have laid hold. So again, Paul did not supply an object. But as one writer points out, in accordance with his use of the same verb in the previous sentence, lay hold of, and in keeping with the entire context, Paul has the knowledge of Christ and his personal relationship with Christ in mind. It's the same idea. It's the same object. My knowledge of Christ, my gaining of Christ, my relationship with Christ, the fullness of that. That's what I'm in pursuit of. I do not consider that I have yet made the fullness of that yet my own. The writer says he recognizes that his partial knowledge of Christ is a very long way from knowing Christ as much as he desires to know Christ. Is that your desire? To know him, the one who, the one who rescued you and saved you and made you his own, to know him as much as anyone could possibly, any saved human being could know him? Is that your desire? Is that your pursuit? It was Paul's. It was Paul's. And we'll get to it. Paul's gonna argue that you should think just like Paul. It's not like, hey, this is for me, you know, because I'm an apostle. So there's a different standard for us, different different set of desires, pursuits. No. He's going to argue this very thing should be your thing as well, Christian. One writer says he has not yet achieved his supreme goal of gaining Christ. He has not yet reached perfection. He keeps on pursuing this long, cherished ambition with the intention of laying hold of it. Because the risen Christ powerfully laid hold of him on the Damascus road, setting his life in this new direction. Because that's what Christ does. You, if you have been arrested by him, you will not be the same. You cannot be. You cannot be. Now look at the next statement in verse 13. Okay, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. What's the next statement? Shout it out. Where are your Bibles? I don't see your Bible open. You can't tell me what it is. Don't rely on me. How do you even know I'm telling the truth? What's the statement? Give it some, give it some, the proper oomph. That's good. That's better. It's better. Work on it. You have a whole week. We'll come back to it next week. In the NASB, I do, here we go again, is in italics. Because again, that is not found in the translation or the manuscripts. It's not, it's in the translations, but it's not in the manuscript. Translations add I do to complete the sentence. But this short interjection, because that's what it is, in other words, he's, he's, he's going along and he interjects something. It's short. Ugh. 
It really could be left as it is, and it makes good sense in the context. It, it literally is this. After he says that, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing. Just one thing. Okay, and then he picks back up. One author says, this short but forceful interjection which suggests a singleness of purpose and concentration of effort points the way forward after the preceding negation or denial. The denial is, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing, and then you're waiting. But this one thing. See? Feel it with me, because it's there. It's powerful, it's moving. Paul did not regard, one writer says, himself as as having obtained the final knowledge of Christ and the fullest conformity to him. Not yet. One thing, therefore, was the consuming passion of his life. What's the consuming passion of your life? What is it? Don't answer, don't answer. But what is it? Another author points out Paul's one thing implies focus, concentration, and effort. That he sets us that he sets aside distractions and works at keeping his mind on the goal of knowing Christ and becoming more like him. What is the consuming passion of your life, brothers and sisters? What is it? What is it? Hey, young people, what is it? What is it? One writer says this. This is good, so I wanted you to see it. I thought it was good. In light of his realization that he has not yet attained the knowledge of Christ that he desires, he has only one goal. The highest priority in his life captivates his full attention and demands total concentration. The tyranny of urgent needs, the clamor of popular voices, the top news of the day all take a pale second place to the one overarching goal of Paul's life. All his thoughts Emotions and decisions are focused on this fixed point. One thing. Paul's one thing is then developed for us by the imagery of a runner in an athletic contest. And we're going to save that imagery. And the rest of the section for next time. And I'm going to pause here and ask you the question I asked you at the beginning. I'm going to ask it again. As a Christian, I'm going to add that now. Is there something you cherish? Something you treasure? that you don't yet 
have and are with the utmost seriousness and intensity chasing after to get. Is there something you are exceedingly longing for, aching for, and that you are extremely focused on and preoccupied with obtaining? Is there something that the eyes of your heart are absolutely fixed on and that you are earnestly striving to gain? And don't plan to quit pursuing till you have it. I have thought briefly, and we'll come back to this again, possible issues for you or for me or for anybody who's hearing this and thinking about it. One possible issue for you is you have not been apprehended by Christ. You have not been arrested by him, and therefore the idea that the pursuit of Christ would be the great passion of your life, knowing him, being conformed to him, gaining him, is silly or nowhere in your universe. That's a possibility. Christ has not apprehended you. You are not truly saved. You know about him, but you do not yet know him. And so our our desire for you would be that you would come to know him truly in a saving way through repentance and faith. And there's plenty of people around here who would love to even discuss that with you if you're not sure. Because otherwise, this is a bunch of nonsense to you. But to those who have been apprehended by Christ, it should be or should make perfect sense. But for us, for those who have been apprehended by Christ, sometimes, somewhere along the way, we might lose sight of him. Or we might have allowed our eyes to be glued to lesser things. Or maybe, I can't imagine this, but it's possible you, you would believe you've gone as far as you can, at least in this life, which is, let me just say, not the case. Paul, 20 years in, at least 20 years in, as a Christian, after Damascus Road, is writing this. May the Lord continue to use this letter to work in our hearts and in our little church for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for all that has taken place today in our midst. And uh, Father, I just pray you would continue to work mightily in this little fellowship. Father, I pray that you would use your word to convict our hearts and to make changes if needed in our lives or where needed, I should say, in our lives for our great good and for your great glory. And I pray all this in Christ's name, amen.